Thank you so much, uh, Bob, for that wonderful introduction. I'm afraid uh, I, I hope I can uh, somehow uh, live up to it. Uh, I'd like to thank Bob uh, for uh, inviting me and uh, Mitch Lerner uh, for uh, <clears throat> taking me out to dinner and uh, helping me around. And, and especially, I'd like to thank Ann Powers, who uh, organized my visit uh, with uh, consummate skill. What I, uh, I should say this book is my favorite book of the ones that I've written simply because it doesn't deal with the eternal and, and seemingly endless problems of the Korean Peninsula, which are enough to get you depressed on almost any day of the week. Uh, and uh, I've tried to understand that relationship uh, throughout my uh, adult life. And uh, we aren't back where we started from, but we're really right now in a period of uh, complete stasis in terms of North-South relations. I, I wanted to do this book uh, <clears throat> because I, I got really tired of Atlanticists uh, talking as if they know the whole world when a person like Henry Kissinger, for example, who was a charter Atlanticist, his, his three-volume memoir is a really good memoir. It's, it's one of the best. But when he talks about China, of course, his discussions with Mao and Zhou Enlai are interesting. But when he talks about China, it's boxes within boxes. And when he talks about Japan, it's a big kabuki play. And I think generally, you know, we've developed quite a bit of expertise on Japan and China, especially since World War II. And it would, you know, behoove an Atlanticist like uh, Kissinger to read a bit about it because what he says is often embarrassing, uh, the stere stereotypes. Uh, so I, I wanted to do a pacificist account of the American role in the world. Uh, but pacificist actually means pacifist if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, and furthermore, there isn't really any pacificist tradition that one can point to. So what I, I did was start around uh, uh, especially the 1850s with the war with Mexico uh, and come forward to the present circa 2009 uh, trying to understand the westward thrust across the continent and then across the Pacific uh, from a, a, a number of standpoints. Uh, one is uh, political economy, another is, is simply Western history, which is so deep in this country. There's so many books, you almost any, any even small incident has a book about it. Pacific, our, the history of our involvement in the Pacific is not so deep. And furthermore, everything stops between American Western history uh, and America's history in the Pacific right at the water's edge. Hardly ever do those two literatures get bridged. And yet, when, when I hope I can show you today uh, in maybe 30 or 40 minutes that uh, there's a direct link, uh, even from the war with Mexico uh, onward to our Pacific involvements. Now, this mural is John Gast's famous mural, and it, it has with it all the uh, artifacts or cliches of, of uh, uh, the frontier and the movement westward except for uh, a woman whose gown is falling off. Uh, and that thing in her left hand, if you can see it, it's the telegraph. Uh, and I uh, think the 1840s are interesting for a whole variety of reasons, but maybe the, the biggest technological development of the entire century was the te telegraph uh, that came on stream, so to speak, just in time to report the Mexican War. Uh, when Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo, uh, it took three days for the news to reach London. It isn't that far. When Andrew Jackson became president, he came from Tennessee, 
to Washington. It took him three weeks. There was no way to communicate across large spaces. I mean, people sent carrier pigeons and things like this, couriers, the uh, Pony Express. But the telegraph cut everything down to seven seconds. So if something happened in Johannesburg, it would flash to St. Louis in seven seconds. And even though we live in a, a world of extraordinary technological developments, and I, I have to say my favorite Silicon Valley person was Steve Jobs, and I'm very sorry he passed away. He's a really a protean individual. I still don't think anything that's happened in Silicon Valley in the last 50 years can compare to the telegraph, just in terms of shrinking the world uh, and making, um, uh, making us aware of world events in the world at large uh, in so many new ways. This is what I think Henry Kissinger and most people who live in New York City think about the West, uh, <laughs> Columbus, Chicago. You see the view from 12th Avenue. Uh, the Hudson River is almost as big as the Pacific. Uh, there's a place called Kansas City and Nebraska, and there's some kind of mountain next to Nebraska, which is pretty funny if you've been to Nebraska. Uh, Chicago gets a, a little bit of a, a notice up to the right. And having moved from the great state of Ohio, I, I went to Denison University. I used to come to Columbus to play uh, basketball and baseball against Capital uh, University. I was picking splitters out of my rear end, but nonetheless, I was on the teams. And uh, we also came over to Columbus for a good time since Granville was a dry town when I went to Denison. So <clears throat> anyway, uh, we have the great state of Ohio. <coughs> How did I get onto Ohio? I completely <laughs> forgot the next point I was going to make. Uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> when I got to New York, this is the point I was going to make, in the eighth grade, I lived in first Westchester and then northern New Jersey. My father had a job in Manhattan. And uh, I then uh, after Denison, I went to Columbia, so I came to think of myself as a New Yorker. And even after the Cleveland Indians had lost so many decades of games, I decided I was a Yankee fan in the late 90s uh, after Jose Mesa blew a seventh game save uh, in 1997. Anyway, uh, baseball fans here may know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, and the New York perspective is really almost exactly like this. I've had New York friends tell me uh, things like, uh, were there any protests against uh, Bush's invasion of Iraq in Chicago? And I would say something like, well, it's a big city, you know, that, that place called Chicago. And <laughs> meanwhile, you know, Rashid Halidi in particular uh, was at Chicago then, our, I think our best uh, Palestinian-American expert on the Middle East. He's at Columbia now, and he was uh, on NPR and TV and all of that the whole time. So. Uh, you might think Columbus gets looked over. I think Chicago gets looked over. These are flyover places. Then you get to Los Angeles, and New Yorkers don't like that either, uh, and vice versa, which you can see in Woody Allen films. So I put this in the book just to give the Atlantis' view of everything to the West. Uh, in the book, uh, I wanted to avoid at all costs a James Michener-type romantic study of the Pacific Islands and their uh, lovely uh, welcoming women and all the stuff you read uh, in or see in South Pacific uh, musicals like that. Really, the equator pretty much marks off uh, what, what I was interested in. I was interested in the North Pacific, 
uh, relations between East Asia and the United States. And right at the top there, the Aleutian Islands, uh, which weren't very uh, much when uh, Seward purchased Alaska for $7 million, widely known as uh, Seward's Folly and Seward's Icebox. Uh, but when we also annexed the Hawaiian Islands, you can see how the North Pacific is capped by uh, Alaska and the Aleutian Islands and a huge military encampment uh, of various kinds by the United States. Hawaii is the most militarized of the 50 states by far, I mean, when you look at the data. And ThinkPack, the commander-in-chief of the Pacific, which sits right across from Fort Island, his, his headquarters in, in uh, uh, Hawaii, uh, ThinkPack claims all of this. <laughs> And I, I have a, another slide that I didn't bring with me, but ThinkPak's logo is an eagle that has one tail and kind of over Canada and the other right over Beijing. Uh, they claim to surveil and, and uh, police, uh, as a military power, 52% of the Earth's surface. So it, it, it is an enormous concentration of power by now. But what I learned in this book is that it took an awful long time for Pearl Harbor and, and uh, the Hawaiian Islands to catch anybody's attention. I mean, fundamentally, Pearl Harbor was, was a, a backwater until Roosevelt uh, decided in 1939 and 40 to send the Pacific Fleet out there and build it up. And then, of course, it got attacked two years later uh, on December 7th. Uh, I, there's no huge body of water in the world that has ever been uh, so dominated by military force as the Pacific is today. And particularly for you students in the room, you should think about this when you read all these books about the rise of China. Uh, I still think China doesn't have an amphibious fleet sufficient for it to invade and, and to overtake Taiwan. It doesn't have enough air, air cover. It doesn't have uh, uh, you know, up-to-date amphibious uh, ships. But maybe they could take over Taiwan. Uh, give them another 20 years and they might be able to send something out to Hawaii that would look like a warship. Uh, they are, uh, do not have a blue ocean navy and when you look at the American position in the Pacific, it's very hard to see how uh, China could even approach uh, the Soviet Union as a rival, let alone become the great power of the 21st century. I have a first couple of chapters where I try to develop a theme, a Marxist theme, uh, namely from Leo Marx's book, uh, in 1964 called The Machine in the Garden. And I've actually been criticized for this because uh, I'm not a literary scholar. But it, he talks, and I'm, I don't want to go into this today, I don't have time, but essentially he talks about the Europeans who populated uh, first uh, the Upper East Coast and then the rest of the country uh, as thinking they found in Arcadia, and wanting to construct a utopia uh, that would put all the ills of Europe uh, behind Americans. And this is a very early theme, and it continues right down to the present, except that it, it, it is more or less died along the way across the continent. And we don't have books called Indiana and the Fictions of Capital, but we do have a book called California and the Fictions of Capital. In California, uh, that particular juxtaposition of Arcadia and Utopia uh, idealism and realism, machines kind of grinding up places like northern Illinois to produce Chicago, which was the great protean city of the mid-19th and late-19th century, 
still, this discourse goes on all the time in California. And as Sarah Palin can tell us, Alaska still is a frontier. It really is. I mean, it, it, uh, you, you can go shoot grizzlies. I, I don't actually think she's ever shot one, but maybe she has. Uh, but people do eat grizzly meat up there. And uh, you know, people go uh, you know, hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, and write to their congressman at night, you know, which is a, a, a sort of takeoff on what Marx said utopia would be. You know, you <coughs> hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, and, and write uh, criticism at night. Uh, and then Hawaii, I, I actually think, is a paradise. <laughs> you know, maybe we're ruining it and all that, but every time I go there, the temperature is 72 degrees. It's perfect. You can still find plenty of places to get away from the grid of industrialism or the city. Uh, but it's a it's very long theme in American history. But the city I live in, Chicago, just ground it up and spit it out. Uh, I mean, no one ever asked if Chicago was going to be either an Arcadia or a Utopia. Maybe they did at some point, but not after it got going. The city of big shoulders, the city that works, belching out factories, uh, killing pigs on an assembly, disassembly line, and so on. Uh, these are some recent book titles from, say, the last decade, mostly about California. Kevin Starr, of course, is, is the great historian of California, and I've read all of his books and found them very useful in doing this book. Uh, but um, we, don't, we don't think about Ohio or Illinois uh, in the same way that Californians think about their state. Per Coast of Dreams, New Jersey. Well, we do have New Jersey Shore. That's a dystopian TV show, in my view. <clears throat> I've always been, in my career, influenced by Lewis Hartz uh, and his liberal tradition in America, which is seen by many historians as a, as a uh, kind of an ur text of American exceptionalism. And I've always thought that was wrong. Uh, Hartz was born in <laughs> Omaha. He ended up at Harvard. And the liberal tradition in America is about what distinguishes the U.S. from Europe, uh, especially that we never had a settled peasantry. Therefore, we didn't have a large landlord class. Uh, and because of that, we didn't have the struggles uh, that Europe had and that were so important to Marx and Engels, uh, but shaped so much of uh, modern European history or Korean history or Chinese history. Uh, and uh, therefore, our politics takes a different form. It, it's always homing toward the middle. It might not look like it now, but Hartz thought we really couldn't have a serious left wing here. And we have never had a serious communist party. And therefore, we haven't ever really had a serious right wing e party either. I mean, fascists were running around in the 30s, but they never got any traction. Now, today, we have people calling Obama a fascist, including Hank Williams Jr., who called him Hitler the other day. I think Hank needs to, to go back to school if he ever did go to school. Uh, and, and they call him a communist, too, or a socialist, and, and denounce our allies in Europe as, as socialists, even though these are all social democracies and very similar uh, in terms of their health and welfare programs uh, to what we have or sh perhaps should have. But I, it, it was years after I read the liberal tradition that I came across this quote from Marx in a, a little-known essay named Bastiat and Carey, Bastiat being a French free trader, Henry Carey being the most important 
American economist of the late 19th century who was a protectionist. Back then, we were protectionists because we were protecting ourselves against uh, England's uh, huge position in the world economy. Uh, I say little known because uh, I happened to mention this essay to Christopher Hitchens, and he said, I've never heard of that. And I thought, well, Christopher, if you haven't heard of it, then nobody else has either, because uh, he seems to know everything. So you, you can read the quote for yourself, but I was particularly interested in the last part here of linking, linking up the productive forces of an old world, actually you know, high-tech productive forces, as we would call them, like the telegraph in the 1840s, with the enormous natural terrain of a new one. So you have virgin land. Of course, Indians were there, and we, I have a long passages in my book where I decry what happened to Native Americans. Uh, but the fact was they were tribal and hunter-gatherer formations who could not resist uh, white Americans. And, and so it was virgin land, in effect. Even when they got to California, where the Mexicans and Spanish had been uh, for quite a while, it turned out they hadn't really uh, done any significant land uh, uh, reorganization except for haciendas that were uh, primarily for raising cattle. So you can take, the, say, a Kalamazoo combine, which was in the 1880s a high-tech combine, and stick it on a, a California farm that is thousands and thousands of acres big because there are no enclosures, no property rights. Nobody had uh, formed farms there. No yeoman farmers had gotten to California by the time of the gold rush, or hardly any. And I, I think that was just a tremendous comparative advantage uh, in the world economy. I also talk about Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis only to say that it's been proved pretty much wrong. Uh, but it is an incremental theory. In other words, family farms are slowly moving west like an amoeba, uh, and they get to Indiana, and then they're off to Illinois and to Kansas, but it's a slow movement. But with uh, the gold rush in 1849, everybody from all over the world is clamoring to get to California. Uh, and that's a qualitative leap that uh, the frontier was about, I think, 1,500 to 2,000 miles from uh, the area, the mines of the gold rush. And suddenly, San Francisco emerges as a very different city than any other. Kenneth Rexrath once said uh, in the 60s, 1960s, San Francisco is the only city where the Puritan tradition marching over land didn't colonize it. He actually said it better than that, but that's what he meant. And then he said, thank God. And so we have Sodom and Gomorrah by the Bay, or whatever you want to call it, uh, ever since the, the gold rush. I have a chapter called A Continent in Five Easy Pieces, just to draw on the Jack Nicholson uh, film a, a bit. Uh, but I myself, not being an historian of the United States, was amazed at the ease with which the continent was made American, so to speak. Not subdued, but brought into the, into the United States. Thirteen colonies took an awful long time to move anywhere. Uh, when you imagine people arriving in 1620, uh, and when the revolution came in uh, the late uh, 18th century, they still were basically where they were before. Uh, but suddenly, with uh, especially Jefferson, uh, he sends uh, his representative to uh, Paris in April to try and buy out uh, New Orleans from Napoleon. There, I read about 15 different diplomatic accounts of this. It's kind of hysterically funny, uh, some, of, some of the things. 
Uh, but at one point, Talleyrand finally uh, looks at Livingston, uh, Jefferson's rep representative, and he says, uh, what would you give for the whole? And Livingston says, what do you mean the whole? Well, whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever's, you know, New Orleans and the lower part of the Mississippi and all the rest. It's $15 million. Sold. Uh, where, there we go. This is uh, this doubled American territory. But nobody knew that because no one knew that uh, uh, this was a continent. That's another really amazing thing that I learned in my research, that the idea of the continent only came into being in terms of cartographers being able to specify it uh, around the 1830s. Somewhat like that poster, they had uh, the Rockies in Kansas. I uh, did not know the, that it was a 3,000 mile across continent. So you get the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, oops, I'm going the wrong direction. It, it was also discovered, of course, that um, the continent uh, is good for farming uh, east of the 98th uh, meridian. Uh, but west of it, you don't get enough uh, water except up in Washington or Oregon. Uh, Lyndon Johnson grew up in a very poor uh, uh, so-called dog-run house that happened to be right on just very close to the 98th meridian where uh, you had a lot of poor farmers trying to scratch uh, uh, a living out of the soil and not being able to rely on rain or, at that time, irrigation. Uh, then. You have Polk's War, which I will just mention, uh, but it also is as big uh, as the Louisiana Purchase or bigger in terms of bringing in new territory. Above all, it brings in Texas and the Pacific Coast. <clears throat> he settled on the 49th parallel with the British, which was a surprise to people at the time, and it still is the border between Canada and the United States. Uh, so. He's, he's an amazing president and not one very well known. He was very smart, finished first in his class at the University of North Carolina, very shrewd, tough guy, ran for one term, barely got into office in 1844 and said he would quit after that term, and became something like the American Bismarck in, in putting uh, the continent together. Uh, I recommend particularly the students to read all about it. And then Seward's Folly kind of caps the North Pacific uh, and then uh, Hawaii is an annexed and uh, Hawaii is not part of the continent, but you have essentially the contiguous uh, 48, uh, 49 states, 48 states plus Africa that you have today. Uh, we'll get Africa one of these days. We already have the AFCOM uh, coming into existence, uh, plus uh, Alaska uh, that we have today. There is uh, James Polk. The war with Mexico is, is very interesting uh, in one respect, and that is that Americans almost always go to war by letting the other guy fire the first shot. Sometimes the other guy fires the first shot unexpectedly. Uh, sometimes we maneuver them uh, to fire the first shot. Uh, there's a huge debate, or used to be, about Pearl Harbor, about whether uh, War Secretary Stimson and Franklin Roosevelt were maneuvering the Japanese into firing first. And in his diary, Stimson said that was advantageous because we have an isolationist country in Congress, and you know how are they ever going to uh, support uh, this war, which is necessary? Uh, I've never 
been convinced that we maneuvered the Japanese. If he hadn't written that down or thought about it, I think they would have attacked roughly at the same time. But Polk did maneuver the Mexicans. It's a very interesting story. Lots of good books on the war. <coughs> I wouldn't call it a war of aggression, although I might have in the book, because one review quoted that, and I didn't look back to see exactly what I said, but it, it was a war of manifest unequals. And pretty soon, Zachary Taylor and his troops were in Mexico City. So uh, we essentially dismantled Mexico, took about half of it, brought California into the Union. And in one of the great ironies of world history, the treaty ending the war uh, was signed just a few days after gold had been discovered on the American River. And you know, the Spanish had come to California looking for gold, never found any. Suddenly, it comes pouring out of, of the uh, mountains uh, of uh, California after California becomes ours. <clears throat> now, for me, 19th century history for much of my career began with Perry's opening of Japan in 1853 because I was looking through the wrong end of the telescope. I was looking at it from the standpoint of China, Japan, and Korea. Uh, I, I was ignorant, really, of the degree to which Perry and his mission were a follow-on to the Mexican War. Uh, there's a very good Japanese book that appeared a few years ago in, in English uh, that cites Japanese records to the effect that Perry told Japanese leaders, uh, you may have noticed that war with Mexico, and you may have noticed that our troops ended up in the capital of Mexico. And he didn't need to say the next sentence is, which that might happen to you too if you don't uh, sign this treaty and, and let us have coaling ports. So uh, Perry uh, was very much a follow-on to the uh, uh, to California coming into the Union and to this general westward thrust. Uh, this is what Pope got out of the war with Spain and the agreement on the Oregon Territory uh, with the British. Just a huge chunk that completed the continent. There's another look at it. Another discovery of mine, which many historians may have known, but, but that I was stunned by, is that California was off the beaten track of the modern world for about uh, 300 years. In other words, Columbus discovers uh, the Americas in 1492, uh, and California doesn't really become part of the modern world economy or system until 1850, 1849-50 with the gold rush. And yet, it's one of the most productive agricultural and industrial places in the world. It is our own private Italy, and even has the north-south divide that Italy has. We don't have peasants and uh, padrones in Southern California, but if you talk to Northern California, you've got a lot of barbarians down there. Uh, California was thought to be an island or a, maybe a peninsula of something, but not connected to the United States. And this is John Speed's 1826 map. There's a, a better version of it. I always think that cartography is one of the best ways to understand history uh, because you, they, they make mistakes like everybody else. And then like every other scholarly group, they get a consensus 
that California is an island, then anybody departs from the consensus I, doesn't know what he's talking about. And so it went on for, for uh, so long. Finally, the Spanish king, and I, I have in my notes the year, but I, I don't remember right now. I think it was about 1750. He declared that California is not an island. Uh, but they weren't still sure that it was part of uh, continental North America. So no one could find California. And then suddenly it dropped in their laps in, in 1849 with the gold rush. And, and I have several chapters in the book that try to demonstrate the point that California has been at the cutting edge of high technology ever since for the last uh, 160 years. That high technology might be putting a combine into a field uh, to make California a great exporter of wheat in the 1880s. Or it might be citrus, uh, which isn't high technology in, in, in growing lemon trees. That stuff started in China uh, millennia ago and then migrated around the world. But pretty soon, uh, brand new canning technologies were developed. So people made fortunes <laughs> canning peaches and tomatoes, and uh, not tomatoes, well, maybe tomatoes. Uh, plums and peaches and all of that, and then sending oranges and lemons back east on refrigerated cars. Now, I am, my chair is named for one of the biggest robber barons of the 19th century, Gustavus Swift, who really built the abattoir by the lake. He was one of the people who made Chicago into a huge meatpacking and hog slaughtering city. Uh, but he also was an inventor of a, of a refrigerated car that proved very useful for citrus. So you could uh, have trains going out from, from Los Angeles to Chicago or Detroit, and they had a sophisticated telegraph system to tell them where you had too many oranges and where you didn't have enough. It was a huge industry and high-tech for its, its time. Uh, oil was discovered in California. Uh, Signal Hill was one of the big, uh, uh, right, you still see it in Long Beach. They still have oil wells right in the middle of Long Beach. Uh, oil became, of course, the cheap energy sector, the leading energy sector of the automobile industrial revolution. And as you all know, we're still using it. Uh, people forget that California and Texas supplied all the oil we needed until after World War II. Automobiles. California didn't build autos. They were built in Detroit until later a couple factories opened, but California pioneered the lifestyle we all live in the 20s. Uh, suburban uh, living, uh, going to a grocery store in your car, and saturating the market. California had one car for every five people by the Depression, by 1929. Uh, France, Germany, England didn't reach that until the 60s or 70s. So. This was the place, I mean, the continent was the place where the automobile and Henry Ford's Model T uh, <coughs> spread across the land. But California really pioneered so many aspects of the kind of life we live today. And then they, they took what had always been true of the populating of the continent and uh, turned it into an endless industry, which is real estate booms. We can talk about that if you want to. <coughs> I had uh, long sections in the book on Manifest Destiny, which was part of the war with Mexico, and then a second coming of Manifest De Destiny when the Philippines were uh, taken and made our colony. Uh, but in between that, we had a, a history on a north-south axis rather than an east-west axis. Uh, 
after the gold rush and the populating of California, it's just amazing to see how the coming of the Civil War and the war itself stops everything, uh, except uh, Ro uh, Roosevelt, uh, another Freudian slip. Um, Lincoln uh, deciding that uh, we needed a transcontinental railway. But he made a, a prophetic statement, I think in his second address to Congress, right in the middle of the Civil War, where he said, there isn't any demarcation that can divide this continent. Americans go to the south through New Orleans, they go to Europe through New York, uh, and they go to Asia through San Francisco, and no line will ever bisect uh, this country permanently. So uh, it, it was a, a vision of what became true after the Civil War, but it was delayed for so long. I mean, the Continental Railway came along quickly, uh, but uh, <coughs> the kind of interest in moving west uh, was really delayed until the 1890s where it picked up again. This is just an example of the kind of posters uh, California put out 100 years ago, cornucopia of food and fruit and all of that, plus a climate for uh, uh, health and wealth. I already mentioned uh, the saturation of the car market, film, radio, and TV. Uh, Hollywood got going probably in 1915 with the birth of a nation, uh, but it still is the dominant American. Uh, America is the dominant film industry in the world today, still. I was in Taiwan a couple years ago, looked at all the multiplex ads, and 19 out of 20 movies were American, and the same schlock that I get, you know, in Chicago. Uh, <clears throat> really, you need a magnifying glass to find a good repertory cinema in, in this country. But that's not here nor there. The fact is that Hollywood just dominates uh, global uh, movie production. And China, uh, is the Chinese want to see uh, our movies. Radio was developed in the, in the 20s, and then TV was invented toward the end of it. Uh, <coughs> The TV was invented in the West, I guess is why, what I'm talking about here. Now, I'm running out of time, but to me, the most interesting part of the book and the part I loved doing the most was to take the film Chinatown, uh, which has always been one of my favorite films, and show how it, it kind of reversed our understanding of uh, China and the West in that <coughs> real estate moguls and other rich people uh, in California were moving water the way the old Chinese emperors did in an arid climate to take a desert, which is what southwestern, uh, southeastern California was, uh, and, and water it. And every time you watered it, brought the water in, uh, you would bring in another real estate boom. The film is not, of course, it's a drama. It's not entirely accurate about what happened uh, in, in that period, but it, it doesn't violate history. Uh, but what I thought was so brilliant is it takes the WASP leaders of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant leaders, which they all were, of Los Angeles at the turn of the century and shows how they acted like the old Chinese emperors in moving water uh, and were corrupt. Uh, all the stereotypes of the Chinatown in Los Angeles, uh, you know, Tong Wars, crime, filth, uh, incest, you name it, uh, all the things that were supposed to go on there as in, the, in the biased and stereotypical view were then translated into the way the elite behaved. 
And really the theory of, of the Asiatic mode of production or what some people call oriental despotism is essentially, I don't, I don't know that the writer of the script ever knew this, but it's, it's essentially placed in Southern California. The film has been so influential that Stephen Erie in 2006 wrote a book basically saying, can't we get beyond Chinatown? Uh, this is the aqueduct that uh, William Mulholland brought in to uh, L.A. in 1913 to water two million people when L.A. had about 500,000. So a man with growth on his mind. <clears throat> Don Worcester wrote a really good book called Rivers of Empire where uh, uh, the Chinatown story is actually rendered uh, in, you know, by a, a consummate historian and a theoretical one uh, to talk about abstracted water separated from the earth by the state uh, to raise food, fill pipes, make money. Uh, and uh, he calls this uh, an empire. It's one of the most influential treatments of the West. Uh, and uh, I just don't have time really uh, to go into it, but the only thing I disagreed with in his book is that he said the New West became a principal seat of the world-circling American empire. And whether we have a world-circling empire or not, I think uh, we would have it regardless of whether they had brought the aqueduct to California. I don't see that that's the seat of the empire. In my book, I say that to the extent the U.S. has an empire, I believe a definition of empire has to have a territorial basis. And the territory of our empire is the 900-odd military bases that we have around the globe and that have spread a lot. Uh, I said something like 750 in my book, and, and Bob wrote a very nice review of that book where he updated it or corrected it to 900 military bases. And now we're in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, the commander of our base there said he had never heard of Bishkek before he was assigned to Bishkek. He, he might not have heard of Kyrgyzstan either because it's a, a new state that came out of the Soviet Union. So I think there is... Uh, an empire that is getting increasingly difficult to, to fund and to maintain, but it, it isn't based in Southern California uh, and based on, on water. You don't need to read this. It's just a, a discussion, I mean, a, an outline of the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor uh, on December 7th. I really see Pearl Harbor as, as a cataclysmic day when this country finally uh, developed a coast-to-coast -coast industrial national market. Uh, the, the West Coast wasn't industrialized uh, before Pearl Harbor. There was some industry in Oakland and Richmond in the Bay Area, uh, a little bit in Southern California. Uh, but the state under Roosevelt intervened with <coughs> famous people like Henry Kaiser and Henry uh, of the Bechtel family. <laughs> Henry Luce uh, was part of this, too, in his American Century uh, articles where he talked about the American vision for the world being one of things, of producing washing machines and refrigerators and cars and all of that, and everybody in the world seems to want this, according to Henry Luce, and I think he's been proved uh, more or less right. But the industries that were founded on the West Coast were brand-new, high-tech, state-funded industries to make airplanes. Uh, to uh, make ships uh, to fight the war. And some of the uh, later 
technologies that we came to use, like microwave, for example, were developed and used during World War II uh, in Silicon Valley. And there are many other examples of that. Of course, the great technological project and the most expensive in American history was the Manhattan Project that produced uh, the uh, bombs that decimated uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I think this is a different argument uh, uh, than most people have made. There are a couple of books where uh, historians make a similar argument, but they don't connect it to the national market, ending the dependency of California, for example, on steel. They had to buy steel from Pittsburgh, and it was a Pittsburgh plus price, plus transportation. Uh, so during the war, uh, there were two major integrated steel mills developed in the West. Uh, but aluminum, magnesium, technologies of all types. And what other authors have not done is also connect the other side of the North Pacific, which by uh, 1955 in Japan, 1965 in Taiwan and Korea, and 1979 in China, has been developing in tandem with the West Coast. It's, if you el eliminate the Pacific, you know, and just bring these two places 10 miles apart, uh, you have by far the most productive nodes in the world economy for the last uh, 50 years. And uh, that is a matter of our technology being applied there uh, for uh, where labor was cheaper, uh, but the Japanese and Koreans in particular climbing up the technological ladder so that uh, Sony or Samsung became firms that compete very directly with, with our best firms. And this was planned or thought out in the late 40s by Dean Acheson and, and others, the idea being to connect the cheap oil of the Middle East to the revival of industry uh, in Japan and to connect Japan back up with its former colonies. I've already talked a bit about basing strategy, which came out of World War II. Who would have thought we still have 50,000 troops in Japan uh, more than 65 years after World War II ended? or tens of thousands in Germany. Our troops don't come home unless they outright lose, like in Vietnam. Stalemate in Korea, 30,000 troops there. I will wager uh, 500 bucks that anybody in the room that our troops are not coming out of Iraq. Uh, it still hasn't been settled at all, and the Iraqis are, are making uh, extraordinary demands, uh, but I can't believe we won't have at least 5,000 or so American soldiers in several bases in Iraq. But if the bases uh, disappear and the <laughs> troops do too, I will be proven absolutely wrong. I also talk about the degree to which our Pacific involvements have been unilateral, apart from Europe, often against Europe, uh, rather than the multilateralism, the sense of equality w between ourselves and the British, let's say, uh, that, that is typical of Atlanticism. Uh, this is a terrible map of worldwide bases. I'm still looking for a better one, uh, but you can get a sense of it. Added to this map just recently is AFCOM. I have a 70-page chapter on Silicon Valley, and since Steve Jobs just died, let me say he was a kind of genius, uh, but when you're in Silicon Valley, it's very hard to believe this country's in decline. I'm not aware of a single high technology that some other country possesses that we don't. 
I mean, China's doing a lot of solar, but you know, our solar is much better. It's just that they are, I think, quite rightly getting off the mark in, in doing a lot more solar energy than we are. Uh, their ICBMs are roughly uh, 1970s vintage. I mean, I could go on and on with this, but one of the problems with our debates in this country is that uh, people can sit in New York or in Detroit, especially Detroit, and think that the country's in total decline, and you take a flight to, to San Francisco and go down to Palo Alto, and you can think that we're the world leader and are going to be the world leader for decades to come. Uh, and that expresses the value of an enormous continent uh, where Seattle can be a great Pacific Rim city, grown up like Topsy in the last 30 years, and Detroit can be one of the great nightmares uh, of the Rust Belt. Anyway, I tried to show that Silicon Valley didn't all start in 1980 when Steve Jobs uh, and uh, his friends is, developed the personal computer, Bill Gates uh, and IBM doing the same thing, but rather goes back all the way to 1909. That was the first date uh, I could find where radio wires were stretched in San Jose uh, and comes up especially through World War I and World War II. And the role of the state is just huge in Silicon Valley. When you, when you investigate the origins of something like Oracle, which is a gigantic firm, you find that it started with a CIA contract. Uh, Apple is one of the very few firms that didn't start with state uh, financing. So the idea that the state can't pick winners, I think is just wrong. Maybe it can't in Detroit, but it certainly did in uh, Silicon Valley. And I, I, I try to compare that to Japan and, and Korea and China in the way that the state intervenes to uh, further uh, the development of this country. I was thinking about this book from 1998 when, when I first got the idea to uh, 2008 when I basically finished it. And I, I was completely unprepared for another Western expansionist to come into the office, you know, almost like uh, McKinley or somebody. Uh, George Bush and Dick Cheney, they believe in the Western, the Western Pacificist expansionist project. In other words, they're unilateralists. Uh, they uh, believe in the efficacy of military force. Uh, they don't listen to critics. They think our European allies are full of it. And I could go on and on. And I don't believe this is a criticism of George Bush and Dick Cheney. I think it's what they believe. I mean, we have to spe try and specify what it is these guys uh, makes these guys tick, so that the hard work of diplomacy, cajoling people, getting our friends to agree with us, uh, disappeared. But I thought we were going in an entirely different direction, mainly because of Bill Clinton's two terms, uh, toward globalization, toward working with our allies, toward diplomacy, even with North Korea in the last two years of the Clinton administration. Uh, and we didn't. And from my point of view, uh, my political point of view, I think this was unfortunate. I don't see what we've gotten out of the last decade, really, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm afraid we're not going to win uh, in Afghanistan, and I'm not sure what kind of a regime we've left in Iraq. Seems to like the Iranians uh, quite a bit, uh, so on and so forth. But there's always California, and this is a mural I particularly like uh, because when I was a teenager, I had a 49 Mercury just like that, and I gave, got you know, the back seat, I gave it a little bit of exercise at drive-in movies. Uh, but my, my, dream, my dreams were always 
to go to California and get a 32 Ford hot rod and ride down Whittier Boulevard. And I loved Hollywood movies, and maybe I still do. So uh, let me stop there. I'm, I'm afraid I, I talked a little too long, but I, I know we have uh, 20 minutes for some people and 30 minutes for others for discussion. So let me stop there and, and just uh, see what, uh, what you might have to say. <clears throat> yes? Yeah, it's a fascinating talk, and I'm going to have to have your entire book. Well, thank you. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Uh, you make a, a number of very important points, uh, especially the importance of the Pacific for us. Uh, I, I teach history of the American West and Pacific history here, so. Oh, well, you. you're one of the ones who bridges the, yeah, the gap. But there is another way of looking at Pacific history, and that's to take it as Pacific history. Uh, Oceania and Central Pacific and the North Pacific, uh, and the nations around it and in it, yeah. uh, composing you know, a distinct area. And I'm wondering to what degree that thinking uh, has influenced you. Well, I, I've read a lot of the literature on, on uh, say, Hawaiian natives and uh, how they're trying to take back uh, the 50th state and make it independent and of course my whole career has been reading about East, East Asia which is basically Japan, Korea, China and Vietnam. Uh, I'm not at all expert on Southeast Asia or the islands but what I wanted to emphasize was uh, what, you know, the military, political economy, uh, development, rapid growth and almost all of that has happened in the north, you know, across the North Pacific. So. I said right in the preface, I'm just not going to talk about Oceania, Oceania. And a couple of my Australian friends said that the only thing you mention in your book about Australia is that California got eucalyptus trees from there. <laughs> and yet they think they're a central part of the Pacific Rim. And I, I just felt I couldn't get into it. And with Mexico, too, and the, the Pacific coast of, of uh, Latin America, there's a lot going on. But I had to somehow limit my purview, so I just said, I'm cutting it off at the equator. But one of the things that I, I discovered that I, I should have known or that I, that I think is kind of funny is that when you look at gazetteers of the Pacific, there will be on the left side all kinds of things going on for thousands of years, the you know, Tang Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty, all kinds of things. And on the right side, nothing's going on because there's no recorded history. There's Native Americans, but no recorded history. And so the recorded history really begins with the Spanish, but that's not much of it. I mean, they, they, they never got more than 35 years, 35 miles inland. I found that astonishing. Uh, they hewed pretty close to the coast and had the missions going up the coast. So that, that kind of uh, thing I, I find fascinating. And a, another fascinating thing is that people on the other side of the Pacific never managed to put a ship together to get them over to North America or South America. Some people say they did. There's certain kind of cypress trees in Monterey that, that, that uh, Buddhists claim were uh, Chinese-type trees, but they could have been carried on the winds of the seeds. So I, you know, I, I'll believe it when I see it, if there was a discovery of the uh, North and South American Pacific coast. It, it's, it's Perry going over there in 1853, and then all of a sudden, Japanese, the Japanese are, are open. They have a virtual civil war. You get a, the Meiji Restoration of 1868. 
And so the great meaning of that visit is to detonate modern Japan. Uh, I think they could have been going on with the Tokugawa isolation for quite a while if, uh, uh, if that hadn't happened. But that's the real significance of the Perry visit. And uh, so anyway, those are some, you know, some reactions. But I'm just not an expert on this or, or <laughs> two-thirds of the stuff in the book. I just wanted to, uh, you know, use my fellow historians to try and understand all of this. Another, yes? Well, that's exactly right, and I, I have uh, a couple of slides that I thought were part of this presentation that uh, include uh, this artist Mian Situ's uh, beautiful mural of the Chinese arriving for the gold rush in San Francisco. And I have an, uh, throughout the book a lot on this and an entire chapter on uh, what I call Eastering across the Pacific, because in Western history there's this verb called Westering that got, came into use. So eastering across the Pacific, the Chinese come in huge numbers uh, after the, when, when the gold rush gets going. And then Japanese and Koreans and Filipinos come and do mostly agriculture later. The Chinese built most of the Western Railway. Uh, so we have East Asian pioneers in the West that are a lot earlier than, uh, say, Eastern European uh, immigrants who came in, in the 1880s or 1890s. They're, they're a part of central part of the development of the West from the beginning. And they were subject to just gross discrimination, uh, lynchings, expulsions. I mean, the chief of police in Seattle led an expulsion of the Chinese in the 1880s. I think it was 1888. Uh, there were pogroms against Chinese and uh, later uh, very sharp discrimination against uh, other Asians. And it was really the civil rights movement that ended the kind of Jim Crow that existed uh, throughout much of the West where Mexicans and Chinese would have to sit up in the balcony of the theater to watch a movie. They couldn't swim in the swimming pool until the last day before it was being cleaned. Uh, and above all, they were restricted to Chinatowns and Japantowns and, and others by real estate covenants right into the 1950s. And so the civil rights movement was a huge uh, made a huge difference, not just to blacks, but to uh, Asian Americans. Uh, and then, of course, you had the immigration bill in 1965 that got rid of quotas so that we now have just millions of Asian Americans that have come in since 1965. But that, that's really a part of my book. It's a, it's a, I would say it's one that white Americans can hardly be proud of, uh, but the fact is Asian Americans have, have gotten tremendous opportunities in the West. Uh, in the last 150 years, too, and that shouldn't be overlooked. Yes? Um, I'm wondering about what you, what you think about um, the, oh, you, so you said uh, that the American domination of the Pacific Ocean, uh, you know, it seemed like you said it's here to stay, it's kind of, you know, and I'm wondering what you think about the possibility of a sustained challenge from China in that respect. Uh, specifically, you know, 
Well, for uh, over 50 years, there was a sustained rivalry between our Navy and the Japanese Navy in the Pacific. Uh, it began uh, around the time of the annexation of Hawaii in 1898. The big Japanese warship Naniwa was right off Honolulu at that time. And the Japanese, you know, from their point of view, Hawaii was theirs or it was in their bailiwick. Uh, just as from our point of view, it was nice to have a base in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, so that rivalry gets going, uh, but it's muted because the U.S. was essentially a silent partner in the Anglo-Japanese alliance that got going in 1802, and we had very good relations with Japan until the early 1930s. That's the big naval rivalry in the Pacific, although, of course, Europeans were involved. Uh, after World War II, the result was the Japanese had no navy to speak of. They still don't and we dominated the Pacific. The Russians tried to build a blue ocean navy and, and were a much bigger threat in the eight, 1980s than the Chinese are today with that navy. Uh, but that attempt also demonstrate how, demonstrated how hard and expensive it would be to compete with the U.S. Uh, on the water. I, I, am, I believe that uh, Deng Xiaoping was right in 1979 when he discarded Mao's theories about class struggle and all of that and said we should go back to the theory of productive forces and we should build up our economy and do it for the long term, uh, be good neighbors, not get into wars in effect. And the current regime is basically continuing that. But the real threat from China is that they are taking the talents of a more than a billion people and applying them to the same kind of semi-arid valleys that Californians did from the 1850s onward. And that, everybody in this room will live with that for the rest of their lives. Uh, it's the enormous rapid growth in China that makes it a formidable competitor, not any, anything they're doing militarily except maybe vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan that is, is a real threat. And in that sense, we're, we're going to, at some point, face a Sputnik moment, like when the Russians put Sputnik up and we thought they were ahead of us, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, people like me got National Defense Foreign Language Fellowships to study <laughs> exotic languages like Korean. Uh, that was just an explosion of government funding in the late 50s that, that just continued. And we will have our Sputnik moment with China because China is uh, by no means competitive with us in technology, but I mean, they're building high-speed bullet trains, interstate highways, their, their construction industry is just unbelievable it's all over the world. The Japanese have a huge construction industry, but they weren't all over the world in the 1980s. Uh, so uh, China is a real challenge, but it, I, I just, I'm not a military man, and there may be people in the room that know a lot more than I do about it, but I, I just don't think Frankly, they would be stupid enough to challenge us unless Taiwan erupts or something.
Yeah, John. Yeah. Um, you talked about the sort of innovation in Silicon Valley, though a lot of people working in Silicon Valley seem to be Japanese and Chinese and Indians and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but it's probably the case that real innovation has not yet come really from Asia. Uh, and the place you're probably with most is Japan, which has been a free country and prosperous one for a long time. But on the other hand, they build, they, they, they haven't invented the automobile, but they build automobiles which are far better than yeah. the people that invented them. Right. Talk about Detroit and it's declining. And the sort of backward material ways, like they have a Honda plant, you know, near. <laughs> yeah, right here in uh, Columbus, North Columbus. It's a very good Japanese restaurant out there. Uh, and, but of course, the employees are basically American, so it's in backward imperialism. So could that, uh, you know, doing something, not necessarily inventing something new, but doing something that already exists much better to the point where even in the 1980s, consumer reports would list the best cars, and virtually none of them were American. Well, I am a, a still a car guy uh, and always have a couple of old cars that don't start and things like that. And in 1980, I got a Honda Accord that ran out 160,000 miles. I hardly had to do a thing to it. So you're exactly right. Uh, but the people who run this economy and think about it and, you know, the Timothy Geithners of the world, let's say, they're not worried about the automobile industry. If, if the Japanese make better automobiles, let them make better automobiles. They only worry about it when you have almost a complete collapse of our big three, like we did three years ago. It's not a, a cutting edge industry for them. And if the Japanese or Koreans are making better cars, their free trade theories would tell them that's their comparative advantage. Uh, but when you look at what was being written about Japan in the 1980s uh, regarding the kind of high technology you have in Silicon Valley, they were gonna be uh, making much more sophisticated chips. They, they were gonna have the fastest supercomputers and they did for a while. Uh, but they, they really missed out. I mean, Japan is just not a leader anymore. In some ways, Samsung is, is quite far ahead of the Japanese in applying what are fundamentally American technologies to flat screen TVs and chip making and all of that, which still is, is uh, you know, the best people and the best firms are in Silicon Valley in that uh, enormously important industry. But 40% of CEOs, not 40% of workers, but 40% of CEOs in Silicon Valley are Asian American. At least they were when I wrote my book. Maybe it's higher now. And that, and that means Indian, you know, Korean, Chinese, Taiwanese, uh, some Japanese, but not, not a whole lot. Uh, so that uh, when you're there, uh, sometimes you feel like you're in Amerasia because you can go to Mountain View and get noodles that you can't find outside of Shanghai noodle shops, and it is a, the wave of the future for us. Uh, w you know, India's not going to compete with us. Uh, Korea competes pretty well in certain industries, but my, my wife uh, uh, is the dean of Virginia, and she told me that 10% of the entering freshman, or the applications for the entering freshman class at Virginia last spring were Chinese from the mainland, 10%. They're just sending tremendous amounts of, of students to pay sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year to send them to good universities in this country. That's pretty frightening. Again, when you have 1.4 billion people compared to 50 million in Korea or 120 in Japan. But I, uh, it's a good point that that these are not just Americans running these firms. Uh, other question. Got about 10 or 12 more minutes. Yes.
it is redefining all along the West Coast what it means to be an American. And I mean, we've spent our adult lives redefining what it means to be a citizen of this country with blacks, uh, uh, with the, now the first black president and so on. It's always something that a wasp like me uh, has to worry about. And thinking about it constantly to, to try and figure out what it means that uh, so many people in this country, uh, especially Hispanics, don't have a background like my own and that I, I'm going to be in a minority. Hopefully, I'll live long enough to be in, in, in white minority in this country. Uh, there's a, you used the term invasion, which of course I would never use, but Jack London did in a very interesting uh, short story around 1906 or 7. I can't remember the title, but it's, it's, it's about the enormous population in China uh, and that they might invade. You know, it was during the Yellow Peril era. They might invade the west coast of the United States and all of this. And he, he, he basically uh, develops a scenario where we go to war with China and we uh, use germs to kill everybody in China and then we fumigate the place and then Americans move in. And this is such a horrible image. It's, it makes the Holocaust you know, seem, seem like uh, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's at 8 or something. Uh, but this is Jack London. And re it reflects the extraordinary racism on the West Coast toward uh, Asians at that time. Uh, but I, uh, I mean, I have students coming into my office uh, several every year to, to say that they, they were born here, but people are always asking them what country did they come from and when they're going back things like that. It doesn't happen as often as in the past, but it, it's something we all need to raise our consciousness about uh, because uh, we're going to pay if we don't sooner or later. <clears throat> don't end it now, Bob. Oh, okay. A couple more questions. Well, when you look at, at the way the Chinese are building up their military, I, I don't think they're so keen on it. They, they are keen on making sure they can defend Taiwan. Uh, they've put many more missiles opposite Taiwan, hundreds of them. Uh, but that doesn't signify to me that they're going to invade Taiwan because uh, in order to invade it, they'd have to destroy it with those missiles. Taiwan has a good air force. We just upgraded their F-16s and all of that. They have. Uh, have, have been building coastal defenses since 1947 or 8. And it, in my Korean War book, I talked about how the CIA was expecting an invasion of China just before the, of Taiwan just before the Korean War. And they, they actually evacuated CIA employees on June 15, 1950, from Taiwan, thinking there was going to be an invasion. Uh, but it turned out later that their amphibious craft, crafts were uh, Chinese junks that had been upgraded with weapons and things. They had no, uh, not much of an air force, although Americans had seen Soviet jets in, in the Shanghai area. Uh, and I, I wrote recently in something that I wrote for the Festschrift of uh, Maurice Meisner, a great China scholar who retired. Still the same situation. China can invade Taiwan and take it over and win if they wanted an enormous war where Taiwan and all kinds of people would be killed in the process. But if you're talking about uh, an amphibious invasion that would be able to defeat the, the Taiwanese army and 
you know, you first of all have to stipulate the U.S. doesn't get involved, because if it does, it won't happen. Uh, even then, I think Taiwan can defend itself, uh, unless you want to destroy it. And I, I don't think the Chinese leadership would do that. Look, look at Hong Kong. I mean, they, they managed to get Hong Kong back in 1997. A couple of political scientists predicted, with their, using their game theory models, it would be immediately communized, like Bruce Buena de Mesquita. He also said Iran was going to be overthrown uh, the summer before last. You can tell I don't go for these models. Uh, but uh, here we are so far, so long after 1997, and Hong Kong is still essentially what it was before. It's not quite as autonomous, but it's a, a democratic, uh, reasonably open uh, city. And that's what the Chinese would like to do for Taiwan, one country, two systems. And uh, if they were to violate that by invading Taiwan and the Hong Kong, stock market would crash and people would be fleeing. Uh, the banks would collapse. So I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Think of yourself if you were running China or myself. Why would you want to confront the United States when uh, we're sitting around and can't even raise taxes in this country, uh, uh, can't, can't raise revenue, fighting horrible polarization and meanwhile, and, and wars? I mean, China's industrial production, I think, doubled during the uh, eight years of the Bush administration just on the back burner. Not getting involved in wars is a good way to keep on developing. So uh, it's a rational strategy for them not to get into confrontations with us. And I actually believe it's what killed the Soviet Union, is their attempt to, uh, on much slimmer grounds, compete with us on a military basis and, for the most part, on a world scale. But anyway, uh, probably it's going to be your problem and not mine when China <laughs> does does ultimately develop uh, a formidable military a few decades hence. Well, Bruce, thanks very much. Thanks. Thank, thank all of you for coming. You're a very uh, attentive audience, especially after eating lunch.